Hello and welcome to the Jewitches Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Jewitches.com. Every episode we dive into a new topic on Jewish witchcraft, magic, mysticism, folklore, and practice. And in our many episodes, we break down interesting topics in just about 10 minutes. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram at Jewitches, Tumblr and Twitter at The Jewitches, and join us on Patreon. Links and citations are always available in the description. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Jewitches podcast. Today we are doing something we've never done before, which is going over one specific holiday. And of course, we are starting with the first holiday, Pesach or Passover. Now, Passover is one of the most important Jewish holidays, and that's why we're starting with it. We're also just going to dive right into this episode. You know the drill. Subscribe, follow wherever you listen, rate and review wherever you listen, because it's super hugely helpful. All of your reviews do wonders for us. Follow us everywhere. And now let's just start with it. Now, some people even assert that Pesach is the most important holiday. And while there's no consensus on the topic, it is one of the most observed holidays by American Jews. A 2014 study tells us that more than 70% of American Jews participate in a Seder, while only 50% fast for Yom Kippur and only 20% keep kosher. So even if you don't regularly observe Jewish holidays, chances are you're going to acknowledge Pesach in some way. Now, we mark the occasion with great festivity and ritual, and for those who do not engage in Jewish ritual regularly, the yearly Seder is a wondrous means of reconnecting with the magic of Jewish customs. And as usual, this podcast is but an introduction, not a wholly encompassing article on every aspect of Passover. We will be using the terminology Pesach and Passover interchangeably throughout this episode. If it's frustrating, I'm so sorry. It's just the way of the world. Now let's first tell the story of Passover, but we won't be telling it as you may have normally heard it, or we will be. I don't know how you've heard it. We will be including some of our favorite Midrashic interpretations. For those of you who are not familiar, a Midrash is, to quote, an interpretive act seeking the answers to religious questions, both practical and theological, by plumbing the meaning of the words of the Torah, according to my Jewish learning. We will also be including the commentary of the sages, which will only serve to enrich the story. With that being said, Let's get started. Gather round, Kindelach. Now is the time. Many centuries ago, the ancient Israelites lived in the land of Egypt. After the time of Joseph, they lived happily, as the Pharaoh remembered Joseph. But then came a new Pharaoh who was afraid of the number of Israelites, for the twelve families had multiplied. And so they were enslaved, forced to work in the fields, forced to make bricks of mud and straw, and generally lived in oppression, unable to worship and live as they pleased. However, the Pharaoh was still frightened by the Israelite, or Hebrew, population, and so he decreed that all Hebrew boys born after his decree shall be put to death by throwing them into the Nile River. But two brave Israelite midwives named Shifra and Puah didn't stand for this. Rather than abide by his ruling, they refused. Their love and awe of Hashem prevented them from destroying the lives of these infants, and in fact, they worked even harder to ensure that every infant survived. Enraged, the pharaoh called the two before him and demanded to know why they weren't killing the Hebrew boys being born. They said, oh, we're trying, but these Hebrew women, they're just so hardy and good at labor that when we arrive to help with the births, they're already done with them. And so one day, a woman named Yochebed of the house of Levi bore a son. 
For three months, she was able to conceal his existence, caring for him. But when she could hide him no longer, she was forced to take matters into her own hands. She created a basket of reeds, cocked it with bitumen and pitch, and set her infant into the Nile River. Her daughter, Miriam, a teenager, carried the weight of the eldest daughter with pride and followed her brother. The daughter of the pharaoh, who we know as Batya, came to the Nile to bathe. In the Metachim, she is not only coming to bathe herself clean physically, but to immerse herself in running waters to cleanse and pure herself of the idols in her father's home. And she and she alone spots the basket in the reeds, and a great miracle occurs. As she reaches and stretches to grasp the basket far out of her reach, her arm miraculously elongates, allowing her fingers to close around the basket, pulling it towards her. She opens it to find a baby who she knows to be a Hebrew infant. Her handmaidens clamor and tell her to leave the child as they know the decree to kill them all. But the angel Gabriel steps in and silences them all. The heart of the pharaoh's daughter is taken by the beauty of the infant. She takes him in. Miriam, waiting from her hiding place, reveals herself and bravely and cunningly offers up her own mother as a wet nurse to allow them more time together. This infant is, of course, Moses, or Moshe, meaning drawn from the water, as he was pulled from the water. Now, I will be again using interchangeable names, Moses and Moshe, throughout this. I noticed that I was using them interchangeably as I was writing, so you get what you get on this one. Now, Moshe grew up in the palace as if he were a child of the pharaoh's daughter, and his beauty was said to be without compare. One day, when Moshe was very young, he sat upon the lap of the pharaoh and reached up and took his crown and placed it upon his own head. The pharaoh consulted his advisor, who told him to devise a test, as it was an ill omen for a child to put his crown upon his head. They placed Moshe before a pile of glowing coals and a pile of riches. If he were to reach for the riches, his fate would be sealed. He crawled towards it, but an angel moved his chubby little hands toward the burning hot coals instead to protect him. When he burned his hand, like all toddlers do, he put his fingers in his mouth to quench the pain, burning his tongue and causing him to have a speech impediment. But the pharaoh was satisfied that he would not usurp the throne. It was said that Moshe grew up to be a beautiful boy, but sheltered living in the palace. And one day he went into the world and saw how his people were being treated. An overseer was beating someone, and seeing that no one was around to intervene on behalf of the victim, Moshe stepped in. He struck the overseer, who fell and died. Terrified, Moshe buried him and fled. The next day he went out and he saw two Israelite men fighting, and he asked, Why? And the two men sneered at him and asked, Who made you chief of us? Are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian man? And Moshe was terrified that people knew of his transgression, and so he fled. The Pharaoh found out what Moshe had done and wished to have Moses put to death. And so he fled, fled to Midian and rested there beside a well. In Midian was a priest who had seven daughters. They came to the well to water their father's flock, but other shepherds attempted to scare them off and to cause them general harm. Moshe bravely came to their defense, helping them water their flock and draw water. When the daughters returned home, their father asked if they had returned so quickly, and they shared to the Egyptian man who had come to their defense. Their father instructed them to invite him to their home to break bread with them. One of his daughters, Zipporah, heard this and went back to the man who had helped her, eager to see him again, moving quickly like her namesake, the bird. And so Moshe swore himself to Jethro, the priest. In one tradition, Moshe approached Jethro and said, Give me your daughter Zipporah in marriage. Jethro replied, do you want me to 
do what your do you want to do to me what your ancestor Jacob did? What when Laban gave him his daughters, Jacob deceived him and fled far away. If you are asking me to give you Tzipporah, swear to me that you will not take her far away from me, and will give her to you only upon this one condition. And so he swore, and he and Tzipporah were wed. Tzipporah bore a son who they named Gershom, as Moses said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. One day, when Moshe was tending the flock of Jethro, he took them to the mountain of Hashem, Hobeb. Before him appeared an angel of Hashem as a burning bush, but instead of being consumed by the fire as a normal plant would, it was not consumed. Hashem called out to Moshe, and Moshe responded, Here I am. Moshe said, Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. I am the God of your father's house, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moshe hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Hashem continued, I have marked well the plight of my people in Egypt and have heeded their outcry because of the taskmasters. Yes, I am mindful of their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and spacious land, a land overflowing with milk and honey, to the regions of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. Moreover, I have seen the Egyptians oppress them. Come, therefore I will send you to Pharaoh, and you shall free my people, the Israelites, from Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I to go to Pharaoh and free the Israelites from Egypt? And Hashem told him to go liberate his people. Moses continued, Yeah, who am I? What if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? And so Hashem said, What is in your hand? And when Moshe responded, it was his staff. He instructed him to throw it upon the ground. And when he did, it became a writhing snake. Hashem instructed Moshe to grasp it by the tail, and when he did, it became a staff once more. Hashem instructed Moshe to put his hand upon his chest, and at once it was struck with leprosy. Then it did it once more, and it once again became healthy. And so Hashem said, if they do not believe you or pay heed to the first sign, they will believe the second. And if they are not convinced by both these signs and they still do not heed you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and that water you take from the Nile will turn to blood on the dry ground. But Moshe was not convinced he was meant to be the man of Hashem, and so he fought back. He brought up his stutter, saying, I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And Hashem had absolutely none of this and said, Who gives human speech? Who makes them nonverbal or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I? Now go. But Moshe really did not want to do this, and so he fought back yet again. Please, oh my Lord, make someone else your agent. And Hashem got angry and said, Fine, there's your brother Aaron, and he will speak for you. Now go. And so Moses went with Tipporah and their sons, but along the way, as they rested in an inn, an angel of the Lord stopped them and sought to kill Moshe. Tipporah bravely intervened. She swiftly took a stone and circumcised their son, circumcised their son, diverting the decree. And she declared, you are truly a bridegroom of blood to me. And when God let him alone, she added a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. After saving his life, Moshe, Aaron, and Zipporah reunited in the wilderness, where Moshe shares all that he knows with Aaron. And so Aaron and Moshe approached Pharaoh, but Pharaoh was not impressed. In fact, he increased the labor of the, the labor, and the lives of the Israelites got worse. Now, Moshe, upon hearing this, went to Hashem, demanded an explanation. Hashem didn't love this, but he explained nonetheless. Moshe and Aaron appeared before Pharaoh and performed a miracle, turning the staff into not just a serpent, but as the sages teach, a monstrous creature. The Pharaoh sorcerers attempted to do the same, but their staffs turned to snakes and then were swallowed up. The Pharaoh did not listen, for his heart was hardened. And so Hashem instructed them, Say to Aaron, take your rod and hold out your arm over the waters of Egypt. 
its rivers, its canals, its pond, all its bodies of waters. They may turn to blood. There shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Our sages teach us the water in the bathhouses became blood, and the blood would kill those who drank it. The fish in the Nile died, and the river stank of plague. And so Hashem instructed them to say, If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs, and they will come up and enter your palace, your bedchamber, and your bed, the house of your courtiers and your people, you and your ovens and your kneading bowls, and the frogs shall come up upon you and your people and all of your courtiers. And so Pharaoh was not impressed. And so Hashem said to Moses, say to Aaron, hold out your arm with the rod over the rivers, the canals, the ponds, and bring up the frogs on the land of Egypt. But Rashi explains, really, there was only one frog. And when they struck it, it split into many, many swarms. And the frogs were a terrifying plague, not only because they invited the entire land, bursting forth with their loud, terrifying croaks, but our sages taught that they invaded people's entrails. And the pharaoh was terrified of the frogs, and he called for Moshe to let the people go. But when the frogs died and their corpses were in massive piles, sinking to high heavens, his heart was hardened, and he changed his mind. And so the third place of plague of lice was upon the land. All the dust turned to lice and vermin upon man and beast. But Pharaoh would not relent. So the plague of flies descended upon the land. And the flies were a real nuisance to Pharaoh, so like with the frogs, he waited until all the flies and fleas and lice were gone, until he decided to keep the Israelites enslaved. And so a plague of pestilence descended against the cattle of the land, but it did not harm the cattle of the Israelites. But still, Pharaoh did not relent as the animals died. And so Hashem said to Moses and Aaron, Each of you take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw it towards the sky in the sight of the Pharaoh. It shall become a fine dust all over Egypt and cause an inflammation breaking out in boils on human and beasts throughout the land of Egypt. And so there was the plague of boils. But the Pharaoh did not let the Israelites go. And so Moshe warned him, This time tomorrow I will rain down a very heavy, heavy hail, such has not been in Egypt from the day it was found until now, but to no avail. And so thunder and hail and fire streamed down to the ground, and Hashem rained down hail upon the land of Egypt. The fire was very heavy. Thank you! The hail was very heavy, the fire fire flashing in the midst of the hail, such as had not been fallen in the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so locusts descended upon what was left of the crops and grasses. Locusts invaded all the land of Egypt and settled within all the territory of Egypt in a thick mass. Never before had there been so many, nor would there ever be so many again. Pharaoh yet would not relent. And so Hashem instructed Moshe, hold out your arm toward the sky, that there may be darkness upon the land of Egypt, a darkness that cannot be touched. Moshe held out his arm towards the sky and the thick darkness descended upon all of Egypt for three days. But the darkness did not soften the Pharaoh's heart. Hashem told Moshe, I will bring out one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. After that, he shall let you go from here. Indeed, when he lets you go, he will drive you out from here, one and all. Tell the people to borrow, each man from his neighbor and each woman from hers, objects of silver and gold. Hashem told Moshe that at midnight, I will go forth among the Egyptians, and every male firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Hashem instructed the Israelites to take the blood of a lamb, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, apply somewhat mador that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. None of you shall go outside of your house until morning. 
and the blood on the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, so that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be one of your remembrance. You shall celebrate it as a festival to Hashem throughout the ages. You shall dedicate it as an institution for all time. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the very first day you shall remove leaven from all your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. You shall celebrate a sacred occasion on the first day and a sacred occasion on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them. Only what every person is to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for it is this day, very day I brought your ranks out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout the ages as an institution for all time. Hashem also gave the very first commandment of marking the year. This month shall mark for you the beginning of the month. It shall be the very first month of the year for you. In the middle of the night, the angel of death struck down all the male firstborns in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captives who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And the Pharaoh saw that his son was dead. He summoned Moshe and Aaron in the night and said, Up and depart from my people, you and the Israelites. Go and worship your God. Take your flocks and your herd and go and be gone. And so the Israelites took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls wrapped in their cloaks upon their shoulders. Moshe carried with him the bones of Joseph, who wished to be brought out of Egypt. An angel of Hashem traveled with them, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of clouds by day. But as they approached the Sea of Reeds, they saw that the chariots of the Pharaoh's army were approaching them. Moshe and the Israelites called out to Hashem, who was simply having none of this nonsense, and replied, Why do you tell me? Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. And you lift your rod and hold your arm out over the sea and split it, so the Israelites may march into the sea on dry ground. And the angel who had traveled with them stationed themselves behind the Israelites as they passed through the sea, the water making walls on either side of them. As the army attempted to follow them, the water swallowed them up whole, but the Israelites emerged, dry and safe. Miriam the prophetess, armed with her timbrels and drums, and all the women went out after her in dance and song and chat. And so the Israelites were led out of Mitzrayim, out of Egypt. And that is a very simple retelling of the story of Exodus. Now that you've heard a retelling of the story of Passover, we're going to dive into some of the rituals and more discussions around Pesach and how you can have a deeper experience of it. But before that, we're going to take a quick break. Poreim is a story of the covert nature of Hashem, Shrina. In Pesach, we most often only see overt examples of Hashem, right? Hashem creates the ten plagues, turns staffs into snakes, and sends an angel in the form of a burning bush to push Moshe into becoming who he is meant to be, even when he fights back. But if we look closer, we also see that Pesach is filled with the divine presence of Shrina. And the women of the story of Pesach are rarely mentioned in traditional retellings. Their names are excluded from traditional Haggadot, Shifra, Pua, Yocheved, Batya, Miriam, and Zipporah. The National Council of Jewish Women offers a supplemental Haggadah for the Seder, which highlights the first five women. 
So Shifra and Pua, when the Pharaoh decreed the murder of all newborn baby males, Shifra and Pua did not just follow orders, but rather they stood their ground, lying to their ruler, declaring that they simply couldn't get to the births in time. And it was because of this that the Jewish infant survived. It is believed that it was Shrina, the divine presence, that spoke and imbued them with the strength to follow their beliefs. Yocheved, the mother of Moshe, Miriam, and Aaron, she birthed her children and cared for them as best she could in a world that sought to oppress and destroy them. When Moshe could no longer be hidden, she placed him in a reed basket and floated him down the Nile, trusting in Hashem that he would be safe. Batya, the daughter of Pharaoh, Batya is often not named. In Jewish history, she is a figure of immense courage, faith, and majesty. The Midrash tells of how Hashem sent her to the Nile to bathe and brought her attention to Moshe. Her heart was good and kind, and so she sought to reach for him and draw him out of the water, hence his name. But the story tells us how her arm was not long enough, so Hashem performed a miracle and her arm was miraculously lengthened, and she had the ability to retrieve him. In our Midrashim, it teaches us that her handmaidens remind her of uh, her father's decrees, which forbid her from rescuing the infant, but she still chooses to save him. She raises Moshe as her own, and we are taught that she's given the name Batya, daughter of Hashem, because of how her actions led to the liberation of the house of Israel, which she becomes part of. To quote, God told her, Moshe was not your son, yet you called him your son. You are not my daughter, but I call you my daughter. Lev Rabah 1.3. Miriam, the weight borne by the eldest daughter is intergenerational. She was but a child, and she knew her burden and her path. She was a protector, a prophetess, a wise woman, and a matriarch. Shrina guided her down to the river, watched her brother float in his reed basket, bobbing in the current. She approached the Pharaoh's daughter for after he had been pulled out, cunningly offering up their mother as a wet nurse, reuniting mother and son for a while more. She watched over her brother as an infant and again as a man. As the Israelites fled, she led the way, timbrel in hand, holy joy, sacred music, and dance as her rebellion. And Zipporah, the wife of Moses, Zipporah saves his life as they travel with their son from the home of her father. To quote, Now he was on the way in an inn, and the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. So Zipporah took a sharp stone and severed her son's foreskin and cast it to his feet. Exodus 4.24 Now, during Passover, Jews abstained from chametz, meaning any food product made from wheat, barley, rye, oats, or spelt that has come in contact with water and has been allowed to ferment and rise. Ashkenazi tradition also sees legumes and rice as prohibited due to their status as kidniot, while Sephardic custom does not. So if you are attending a Sephardic Seder, you may see rice on the table, while an Ashkenazi Seder, you absolutely would not. Now, let's talk about matzah. Controversial though the flavor and texture of matzah may be, it is an important part of the Passover ritual and an important part of Pesach in general. Now, there are a million ways to enjoy matzah. If you don't enjoy matzah, perhaps try this. There's matzah toffee, chocolate-covered matzah, the classic matzah with butter and salt. If you've never had matzah with just really good butter and salt, you're missing out. Avocado toast matcha, hummus matzah, um, just about any spread. Some people make pizza matzah, not a fan of that. But you can do whatever you want with it. It's the perfect vessel for so many things. Olive tapenade matzah, labne with zatar, olive tapenade, you're, you're in for the world of delight. So made of flour and water and sometimes a pinch of salt, matzah is an unleavened flatbread. And there are actually different varieties of matzah, and we'll get into it. 
And while you are more than welcome to purchase it at your local shop, making it yourself can be a meditative addition to your Passover preparation. In order for it to be kosher for Pesach, however, the matzah must be completed within 18 minutes. 18 being a very important Jewish number, 18 being the number chai, meaning life. Um, anything over 18 would break the prohibition for leavened breads, as it would consider be considered to rise during that time. And this means the entire process from mixing to baking to being out of the oven must be done in under 18 minutes. So we have a recipe for it up on our website. If you look for our rituals for Passover blog, you can absolutely go for it and enjoy it. So if you're at the store and you are standing in the matzah aisle, which many kosher markets have, your non-kosher market might even offer a bunch of different varieties depending on where you live, you might be wondering, what is the difference between all these boxes? You're often going to see shmura matzah, regular matzah, and then things that say matzah, but then also say not kosher for Passover. Shmura means watched, and shmura matzah is a type of matzah that's been watched from basically seed to shelf. Aptly named, it is carefully washed under supervision uh, to follow Exodus 12, 17, which states, you shall guard the matzot. It is watched from the time of harvesting, storage, milling, grinding, kneading, shaped into circles, rolled out. They add the little holes, it's baked, and it's boxed up. Shemura matzah is the preferred matzah for the Seder for many Jews. It's oftentimes going to be the matzah used for afikomen, used for the ritual portion, while you may you may give, be given a small piece of it, while you might also have other matzah, regular matzah, to just snack on. Now, regular matzah is the kind you can usually find in your market that states it's kosher for Passover um, or it's made at home, and it's usually salt, water, and flour, and it's usually square, uh, and it's going to be very uniform. Shemura matzah, it looks... Let's say more rustic. It might be a little burnt. It's often going to be around. There's imperfections to the eye. While regular matzah looks more like a cracker, looks more like a saltine, very uniform. Um, and it's delicious or not, depending on who you ask. And it's usually far more, you know, again, uniform. And then there's unkosher for Passover matzah, which is a conundrum in and of itself, but it exists. We have to talk about it. And they are exactly like the regular matzah. They're square matzah, but they're not kosher for Passover and cannot be used for the Passover Seder in accordance with the rules and traditions of many, many Jewish communities. So while you can definitely enjoy them year-round, Many Jews will not purchase or eat them during Passover and absolutely not use them during the Seder. So when you're at the store looking at the many options, which you may or may not have, some people only have a couple, be careful to repurchase one that says kosher for Passover and you can use it in the Passover Seder. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a useless box of matzah. And if you hate matzah, boy, that's not going to be a terrible time. Now, one of the most both loved and hated aspects of Pesach is the fact that we do a lot of cleaning. Spring cleaning isn't just swapping out your win winter wardrobe for lighter knits. It also means preparing your home and space for Pesach by removing any and all chametz. While there is no technical law that requires you to actually like, clean with soap and water, the most popular methodology of removing all leaven particles is through giving your home a thorough scrub from top to bottom, bottom to top, left to right, up to down. And this allows you to prep and reset your space for the months ahead. And depending on your traditions, this can also include varying levels of intensity. For example, it's customary for Kurdish Jews to repaint before Pesach, while other Jews not going to do it. Many Jews use lots of tinfoil tape to keep everything clean. Other Jews say, nope, I'm going with a Dawn dish soap and my scrub daddy and we're going to town and then we're not doing anything else. 
Now, for industrial kitchens, it's not uncommon to see a rabbi with a blowtorch going to town to prepare for Pesach, which is a great sight. On the eve of the 14th of Nisan, it's traditional to search the house high and low for chametz. Known as Erev Pesach, it's customary to do so by candlelight with a feather and a wooden spoon in hand using two, uh, using the two to remove any and all remainders of the chametz. Then, once we've completely swept our homes clean, we place everything, feather, spoon, and chametz in a paper bag. The next day, we light it on fire and let it burn. These three stages are known as berikat chametz, or the search for chametz, bitul chametz, or the nullification of chametz, and finally, biur chametz, the destruction of chametz. It is tradition to hide some of the 10 pieces of chametz throughout the house so that when these blessings are said, they are said over found chametz rather than wasted. And it's recommended by a lot of people that you actually wrap up the little pieces of chametz if you're going to hide them so you don't leave any crumbs behind. So then there are brahas that you can say, which we have available on our website. And then there's the nullification where you declare any and all extra chametz left in your home null and void. So then once you destroy all of your chametz, uh, there are non-incendiary methods, right? But burning is the traditional method. Jews do love to burn things uh, ritually. Now, there are blessings that are recited after that. And Pesach begins on the night that the uh, Israelites left Egypt, the night of the full moon in Aries. In Jewish astrology, Aries is known as Taleh. The ram is also referred to as the lamb. Now, to quote, Aries the lamb symbolizes the unity of the collective, for in a flock of lambs, each feels itself identical with the other. Also, just as a sheep follows the shepherd, the Jewish people accepted the authority of Moshe. The Jewish calendar is a lunar solar calendar with a new moon marking the new month. We do have an entire podcast dedicated to talking about the Jewish uh, or Hebrew calendar. Feel free to listen to that if you haven't. It's a good episode. And Pesach begins at the swelling of the moon at its fullest, and it won't be uh, it won't be for quite a time until after Shavuos or Shavuot that there will be a day without a holiday or without a special mitzvah because of the counting of the Omer. So, like many Jewish holidays, Pesach begins with the lighting of candles, um, and you can find the specific bracha for it or blessing for it on our website. And when you're at a Passover seder, you'll notice that there are lots of cups or goblets on the table. And it is said that when the Moshiach or Messiah has arrived, the prophet Eliyahu Hanavi will arrive and herald in the age of the Moshiach. And because of this, we leave out an untouched glass of wine for him and the door open, a place set for him to come and sit at our tables around the globe, coaxing in the new age. Hopeful that with every deed, we come closer to the announcement of the age and the coming of the Moshiach. The prophet Elijah is often joined by the prophetess Miriam, and also Ruth, the first convert in recent years as the Minchag has expanded. Um, the prophetess Miriam is given a goblet as without her, we would not have been led from slavery in Egypt. Unlike Elijah, the cup of Miriam is filled with water to represent the well of Miriam that provided water for Jews in the desert. And Ruth, the first convert, was the great-grandmother of King David, from whose line the Moshiach will come. It is a new tradition to place a cup for Ruth to honor her and all those who follow her and enter Judaism by choice. All our souls are at Mount Sinai, and to honor the return home is a tradition worth including. Now, the Seder plate is a dish steeped in tradition for many Jewish communities. It is a ritualistic representation of the story of Passover, where every item has a meaning. Generally, every item will have a labeled place on a Seder plate, though the food placed on the Seder plate itself will not be consumed. All but the Beitzah and Zeroah will be eaten uh, 
will be eaten throughout the Seder. However, it's important to note that not all Jewish communities utilize Seder plates. Yemenite communities uh, utilize the entire table, artfully arranging uh, all the items across the table, while Tunisian Jews traditionally utilize, utilize a reed basket to hearken to Moshe's journey in the Nile. So on the Seder plate, you'll find the following. Traditionally, generally, karpas, a green vegetable like parsley to represent spring. This will be dipped in salt water. Charoset, a mixture of apple, nuts, wine, dates, figs, and spices, though the particularly, particular blend varies by diasporic group. It's re- uh, meant to represent the mortar used by Jewish slaves in Egypt. It's also to con- contrast the bitter maror. Maror is the bitter herbs that represent the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. This is most commonly found as horseradish, but the ideal bitter herb, according to some, is lettuce. Some specify that romaine is the preferred variety. And this is to represent the bitter that the bitterness is not only bitter, lettuce can be tender and sweet, but the white stems within it are bitter and taint the entirety of the bite. While romaine is preferable, horseradish, endive, or escarole are also permi- uh, permissible. Beitza, a roasted egg is a symbol of the sacrifice in the temple if it, were, if it were to still be standing. The egg should be boiled and then scorched while still in the shell. For vegans, some will use a replacement like avocado pits, oranges, or Brussels sprouts. Zeroa, roasted bone. Most commonly, a shank bone is another symbol of sacrifice. Like the egg, the shank bone is roasted and scorched. For vegans, the gamara suggests using a beet as it represents the blood of the animals. Salt water. Though not strictly on the Seder plate, keeping a bowl of salt water for dipping is required to represent the tears of Jews while enslaved. Uh, An orange. An orange on a Seder plate has a living legend attached to it. Susanna Heschel, daughter of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, an acclaimed scholar and feminist, is credited with the inclusion of the orange on a plate. Often you'll hear a story of how she was told, a woman belongs on the bima as much as an orange on a Seder plate. The bima, referring to the podium where the Torah is read in a synagogue. But the orange has a much queerer history. Heschel, to quote, chose an orange because it suggests the fruitfulness of all Jews when lesbians and gay men are contributing and active members of Jewish life. But despite her specific inclusion for queer Jews, including spitting out seeds to rebuke homophobia, the story changed. To quote Heschel herself, somehow the typical patriarchal maneuver incurred. My idea of an orange and my intention of affirming lesbian and gay men were transformed. Now the story circulates that a man said to me that a woman belongs on a bima, put him in the synagogue, as an orange belongs on a Seder plate. A woman's words were attributed to a man and the affirmation of lesbians and gay men is erased. Isn't that precisely what's happened to the centuries, to, for centuries to women's ideas? So if you hear the story of a woman belongs on a bima like an orange on a Seder plate, you can tell them that that's actually not true. Uh, you can find the full story online. Uh, Heschel was rebuking the idea that maybe we should put a crust bread on a Seder plate and found that that was just a little bit too much considering chametz and chose instead an orange. And now uh, garlic. Now these are all optional inclusions that have been included by many communities. Garlic has been added to the Seder plate to quote, as representative of life affirming protection, a symbol of ancestral healing in service to collective liberation and abolition that holds all life as precious. Initiated by Dory Midnight and Saul Weiss, you can download the garlic on a Seder plate Haggadah uh, on our website or on their website. It's a great one. An olive can be added to your Seder plate as representative of peace, liberation, and freedom in Palestine. To quote, because for millennia, the olive branch has been a symbol of peace, and we seek to make peace where there has been war. And so now we talk about the Seder. The most complicated of all the Passover rituals, the Passover Seder generally follows a set number of steps. However, depending on the tradition and movement, the order of the Seder may vary. 
Some may be very long, involved satyrs, while others may choose a shorter version. There are also satyrs with specific themes, social justice, feminist, feminism, uh, abolition, etc. Creating a meaningful satyr is a great way to, to connect with Passover as a whole. What do you want to honor in your satyr? What do you want to highlight? The Haggadah is the guiding text for the Seder, but there are many variations. You can find a number of options online that align with the spirit of the intention of the Seder that you intend to host. And as you move through your Seder, don't forget to recline. It is a tradition to recline and relax. As in ancient times, this was the symbol of a free person. Let's talk a little bit about the magic of the Afikomen. For centuries, the Afikomen has not only served as a fun searching game for young ones, but also as an important part of the spiritual ecosystem of many Jews. The afikoman is a piece of matzah broken off during the seder and set aside to be eaten at the end of the meal. In most seders, it comes from the center of three ritual matzot, while in seders where only two matzot are used, as done by some Yemenite Jews, for example, you break off a portion of the bottom matzah. In some communities, it's hidden during the seder and children go on an epic or not so epic quest to find the hidden piece. However, after the seder, these pieces of afikoman become protective, powerful amulets for Jews across the diaspora. To quote, Afikomen, a specially designated cake of unleavened bread at the Passover Seder, as an amulet, hanging it in the house or carrying it in a pouch to protect one against evil, against evil spirits and against evil men. To quote, kept safe and sometimes even suitably preserved, these would serve over the ensuing months as protection from the dangers that might lie in wait for travelers and could help with many problems, including mice. They were one element of procedures used to protect children from the evil eye and would be placed under the child's pillow along with a few grains of salt. The afikomen was also particularly sought after as a charm for carrying a pregnancy to term and for ensuring an easy birth. The afikomen isn't merely protective, however. Kurdish Jews have a tradition of tying it to the arm of a son with a blessing to quote, may you so tie the ketubah to the arm of your bride. And it is cited that Jews of Hebron have a similar tradition. Another folk belief that is if it's kept for seven years, the afikomen can be thrown into a rushing river to prevent a flood. And this is just some of the traditions surrounding afikomen, where it becomes a powerful amulet in a lot of our communities. And so those are just some of the things that you can think about as we go into Passover this year. You can find more stuff on our website and let's talk a little bit about our citations. All of our citations are on our website in the article rituals for Passover, but we will list them here. So we have our Chabad article, the feather, the spoon, and the candle, uh, Chabad, the Kabbalah of Pesach, Jewish holidays, a guide and commentary by Michael Strasfeld, uh, Chabad, what is Chametz, Jewish learning, Miriam's cup, my Jewish learning, Ruth's cup, a new Passover uh, ritual honoring Jewish diversity, uh, Chabad, holidays, Pesach, why scatter 10 pieces of bread, my Jewish learning, an article, uh, an orange on a Seder plate, my Jewish learning, 10 Passover customs from around the world, Dory Midnight's Garlic on a Seder Plate Haggadah Supplement, Jewish Virtual Library, The Afikomen, Jewish Magic and Superstition, a, folk, a Study in Folk Religion by Joshua Trachtenberg, Haggadot.com, Freedom Seder Earth, uh, Jewish Women's Archive, Daughter of Pharaoh, Jewish Women's Archive, Zipporah, Midrash, and Agadah, Above the Zodiac, Astrology and Jewish Thought, and My Jewish Learning, uh, Article Midrash 101. Thank you all so much for listening. If you haven't already, please feel free to follow, subscribe wherever you choose to listen. Make sure to rate and review. All of your reviews make such a difference for this podcast, are so helpful. We will see you all in our next episode. Bye. Bye.